Heavenly Father, thy word is truth. As we come to you, O Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and a heart to obey the words that you have given, spoken through the prophets and apostles, and spoken last in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Romans 9, verses 1 through 18. This is God's word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now our text this morning. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> It's not an easy text, brothers and sisters, uh, but we'll continue to persevere through it. And there's a lot to unpack just here in these uh, four small verses. But I'd like to present us with one thing and remind us as we come to the text that we as a society, not just in Germany, not just in the States, but worldwide, uh, have been conditioned that our choice our will, our beliefs, our wants are the chief end of life. 
Slowly following the Enlightenment, the end of the 1800s, uh, through self-thinkers such as Immanuel Kant, all the way up to Friedrich Schleiermacher, our feelings, our emotions, dictate life. We choose the clothes we want to wear. We choose the houses we want to live in. We choose the cars we want to drive. We choose the jobs, typically, that we want to be employed in. We choose the television and programs we choose. We choose, we choose. Like the Burger King motto states, you can have it your way. That's how we live our lives. And even from the time we are little children, we're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? We are conditioned that our free will, that our choice dictates and governs all of life. Yet the Bible teaches us the opposite, doesn't it? God himself upholds everything by the word of his power. He foreordains all things that come to pass. He is sovereign. He reigns. He is seated on his throne. We are not. Every oxygen molecule that you are breathing right now is not yours, but it is borrowed from your creator. The food that we are going to enjoy in fellowship is grown, sustained, and nourished through God's providence. They're all gifts that we get from him. And so when we have this proper mindset of who God is, that God is holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord God Almighty. Can we come to difficult texts and understand what God wants? We understand that God is sovereign and God is the one who executes mercy and justice according to his will. So brothers and sisters, in Christ, serve God who is merciful and just. And this morning we're going to look first at God's mercy to his people in verses 14 through 16. Again, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Hypothetical. Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In these coming verses in Romans 9, Paul gives us a list of hypothetical questions. He's being a good apologist, anticipating what his opponents are about to say. It was first, did the word of God fail? He anticipates it and answers it. And now he says, is there any injustice with God then? If God's word hasn't failed, then perhaps there's something wrong with God, the deliverer of the word. What shall we say then if these were to hypothetically be true? What could man possibly say to God? Who is man to be God's counselor? As a reminder, God himself promised Abraham a descendant, a child of 
the promise. Ishmael was not the promised child. Isaac was. Similarly, Isaac had two twins. One was born of the seed of the promise, Jacob. One was not born of the seed of the promise, who was passed over Esau. Again, the word says quite clearly in verse 11, though they, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing wrong, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Before either of them were birthed, before a thought was given that they would conceive, the younger was going to serve the older. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So Paul is asking us, what will we say then in according to this? What will we attempt to answer back? How could we possibly rationalize this? Can the mind even fathom the depths of what God is telling us here? How do we deal with such a passage? Paul anticipates anticipates it and goes on to say, is there injustice on God's part? We know that God is a just God. If you read your Old Testament, you know that God is a merciful and just God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So Paul interjects that if the word of God has failed, then perhaps there is something wrong with God. Perhaps God is going against his own word. Maybe God has changed now. He's redecided something else. He's not going to go according to his promise, but he's changed his mind. The same word for injustice throughout Paul's writings, specifically in Romans, deals with unrighteousness wrongdoing, iniquity. Six times he uses it in Romans, dealing with sinfulness. It's as if Paul is saying, is God a sinner that he's going against his own word? Is God the one who is unrighteous? Is God full of iniquity and sin? What would it take for us to conclude to such a thing? We know In our shorter catechism, that God is a spirit, he is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, justice, holiness. He has no beginning, he has no end. He always is and always will be. God is unchangeable. He does not decree one thing and then turn around and decide he's going to decree something else. All of this is a demonstration of his being, of who he is. God is holy. God is just. We are finite. We perish. We die. We turn to dust. God is forever. And so Paul asks, what shall we say? Is there any injustice with God? And his answer is, by no means. Other translations may say, may it never be, or the King James says, God forbid this to be a truth. This is such a strong negative in Scripture. We don't see it in your English or German translations. It looks very vanilla by no means. It's just saying no, of course not. 
But quite literally, in the Greek, it's saying that, it's as if Paul is saying that may this have never been birthed into your thought to think for one second that God would be unjust or unrighteous to you. May that have never occurred. May it have never been born in your thought process that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, would be unjust in bringing about his will, his good pleasure, and his providence. So God is not unjust. And again, Paul continues to appeal to Scripture. He appeals to the Old Testament. For he says to Moses. Now, this quote, uh, if you remember the Exodus account, uh, Israel had been saved from Pharaoh through many miracles, many signs. They were in the wilderness wandering. They've received God's law, God's commandments. And so Moses goes up to the mountain of God to speak to God face to face. And in Exodus 32, Israel decides to go back to their own ways of idolatry. Uh, They take all the gold that they have had and they burn it, they mold it into something to be worshipped, a golden calf. They're all gathered together. They just received God's word and now they're going back and seeking idols instead of the one true God. And the Lord himself tells Moses in Exodus 32, verses 7 through 10, Go down for yourself, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you, referring to Moses. But what does Moses do? Moses intercedes. He acts like Christ in that moment and prays on behalf of the people. And leads those to continue into the promised land. The glory of the Lord appears in a pillar of cloud. The Lord speaks to Moses face to face. And so the Lord reminds Moses in this moment that ultimately he is the one who gives mercy and compassion to whomever he will. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The source of mercy and grace is from the Lord alone. We see this all throughout God's character in the Old Testament. Even shortly following this incident, after Israel is prayed for and God's wrath escapes them, They say, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers, on the children to the third and the fourth generation. 
Whereas the psalmist exclaims, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The saving, merciful compassion of God is all throughout the Old Testament. And Paul now is appealing to that fact that God himself has the privilege, has the honor, has the right to dictate who are the objects of his mercy, who he can give mercy to. Quite literally in the text, you can translate it as, I will mercy whom I will mercy. I will compassion whom I compassion. It's God doing the action himself. It is God putting that mercy and that compassion upon those whom he wills. And Paul continues to remind us that God's mercy, God's compassion, even though we've established all throughout thus far that it's not works-based, he also says that it does not depend upon human will or exertion, or human exertion. God's mercy does not depend upon man's will or energy in order to be brought about. God's will is a sovereign will. The human will is not sovereign. The human will is fleeting. We want things one time, and then we want them uh, completely different the other way around three hours later. To have a will is to have a desire to have a want. Our desires, our choice, our want is not dependent upon God. God is the one who is all-knowing and all-powerful. And then Paul also says it does not depend on human exertion either. Uh, this is an interesting word that he uses. In the Greek, it's treko. You could get the word trek. Go for a trek, go for a jog, go for a walk from it. And it has the idea of running yourself uh, until you are at the point of complete exhaustion, where you have nothing left in you. Many of my fellow military brothers know exactly what that feels like. Or if you've trained for a marathon or done sprints, you know what it's like to run yourself until you have nothing left in the tank. It's a feat of complete cardiovascular endurance that Paul is getting at. And he uses it all throughout Scripture in terms of a runner. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Deplete yourself of all you have so that you may obtain it with endurance. He says to ensure in Galatians 2, 2 that the gospel that he had proclaimed uh, had not been uh, set against in order to make sure that he himself was not running in vain, that he himself was not burning himself out completely. So Paul in this passage, not only is he saying that it does not depend on your will or your wants or your desires, but he's emphasizing the fact that it does not depend on how much you exert yourself in understanding this. It does not depend at all upon your effort 
regarding God's mercy and compassion. The Lord says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And we see this clearly in the previous verse, which is why we read it in total this morning. Again, verses 11 through 12, though they were not born, Jacob and Esau had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Works are excluded as a possibility to earn God's mercy, compassion. It is something that he freely gives to his creatures. The fact that anybody is saved alone is completely because of God's mercy. He does not owe us one iota of salvation or goodness that he gives us. Therefore, in concluding this passage, Paul is in effect saying all of this depends upon God's mercy. It all depends on God in the most ultimate sense. It depends on God. And if it depends on God, then God's word has not failed. And if God's word has not failed, then certainly there is no injustice on God's part. John Murray has a a great uh, kind of summary of this passage regarding God's mercy. He says, the mercy of God is not an attainment gained by the most diligent labor to that end, but a free bestowal of grace. No statement could be more antithetical or contrary to what accrues from claims of justice or as the awards of labor. Mercy is never obligatory. Mercy is not obligated to you. But God, out of his good pleasure and out of his own mercy, made you the object and the subject, the one who will receive his mercy because of what Christ Jesus has done on your behalf. And so secondly, we'll look at God's justice to his enemies in verse 17 through 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Once again, Paul is bringing to bear upon his listeners that it is not his opinion. It's not Paul's own convictions. It's not his preference on the matter. It's not because he studied at the best theological seminary in Jerusalem. Rather, he's bringing scripture as his proof on the matter. Should this not also be our own presentation when we come to the text, that we check Scripture with Scripture, that we take away our desires, what we've been conditioned to, how we feel about it, and let the text speak for itself? And here in this passage, we are presented with the opposite of mercy, the, the negative side, if you will, that God hardens whomever he wills. And so once again, Paul turns to the Old Testament 
to prove this very point that God will give mercy on whom he desires and God will harden whom he desires. And this passage itself is cited, uh, it occurs after the sixth plague that occurred in Egypt. Remember the boils upon both man and beast. And it was spoken through Moses to Pharaoh, Exodus 9, 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. To raise up in terms of the Old Testament, it's a reference to people being raised up for a very particular purpose. They have something in mind that they're being raised up for such as the raising up of enemies against God's people. But here, it's a reference not only to Pharaoh's position, but he's being raised up for this very purpose. Through the providence of God, in the scene of redemptive history, Pharaoh is playing this critical role. In Pharaoh's own nature, one who is dead in his sins and his trespasses, a heart bent towards evil, was the providential means by which God used to save his people, to bring them up out of Egypt, to pave the way, the seed that was promised in the garden, the Messiah, to bring him to us. So what does it mean that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart? Is it an active hardening that God is the one who is doing the action, forcing Pharaoh robotically to obey his will? Or is it passive? Pharaoh is acting in accordance with his own will and own desires. The word to harden denotes inflexibility. It's you're not going to waver on the position. If you are hardened, you're immovable, right? This is the only way that I see things. I'm not going to look at the other facts around me. This is how I see things. And so Pharaoh is being hardened in that regard. And there's two different ways Scripture talks about the hardening of Pharaoh. The Lord says in Exodus 4.21, When you go back to Egypt, to see that you do do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I, the Lord says, will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Later in Exodus 7.3, he says, I will harden Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. This active God hardening Pharaoh's heart occurs in Exodus 9 12, Exodus 10 1, 10 20, 10 27, 11 10, 14 4, 14 8. Yet there's also this aspect of Pharaoh hardening his own heart as well. Same passage, Exodus 7, it says, The Lord is said to harden Pharaoh's heart. Uh, Still Pharaoh, excuse me, Pharaoh is to harden his own heart. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And this occurs also throughout Exodus. So what are we to take of this? What does it mean that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart? Remember, Paul has already set up for you a softball that there is no injustice with God. God is just. He mercies who he mercies. He compassions who he compassions. 
we can safely rule out any idea that God induced Pharaoh with some evilness so to make God the author of sin. Once again, by no means. God is not unjust. God is just. So how does God harden the hearts of the non-elect of people like Pharaoh? We all know that people are not as evil as they could possibly be. There are some more evil than others, but all of us, prior to being saved in Christ, are bent towards evil, are dead in our sins and trespasses, are children of wrath by our very nature. We are in Adam. Yet God, still through his own mercy and graciousness, even when you were wicked, he had his hand of restraint upon you that you would not be as wicked as you could possibly become. And there's times throughout God's providence where that sovereignty, that that layer of protection against the most possible evil is lifted for a moment. And so this is the case with Pharaoh. God sees it to remove his hand of restraint upon the wickedness of Pharaoh and allows Pharaoh to act in accordance with his own nature. What is his nature? A child of wrath, a child of the devil, someone who is dead in their sins and trespasses. God is saying, I will let you be who you want to be. I will remove the grace and mercy that I can rightly give you, that you can go and be as sinful as you desire. And this is the exact same way Paul has expressed this in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, the exact same truth has already been stated. This is nothing new that Paul is bringing forth. Paul says in Romans 1, 22-24, referring to the unbeliever, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore... God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. When God removes his hand of restraint, he gives people over to their desires, which is to sin, which is to reject that, which is to reject God as the one true God, which is to reject Christ as the only Savior. He lifts his hand of restraint. He passes over them. He does not give them the mercy because we don't deserve mercy in the first place. God is not unjust. He has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens. He passes over whomever he wills. God is just in that he rightly judges the sinner who was born in Adam. Again, Romans 5. None of this this is new to us. We know that the wages of sin is death. We know that all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Our works are like filthy rags. We cannot earn our own salvation. God's righteousness then is vindicated in his freedom to show mercy, but also to inflict judgment. Let me present you a a human illustration on this. 
Uh, many years ago, uh, we lived in Tennessee, and it was December, a few weeks before Christmas. Uh, and, and in the U.S., if you're not familiar, there's a program called uh, Layaway. Uh, so what you do is you can pick out some gifts at a store. Uh, you can pay a little deposit for those gifts, but you don't have to pay them all off right away. You can take some time uh, to eventually pay them off. But the gifts are set aside uh, for you. And many uh, parents, single mothers, single parents uh, who have to work many hours just to make ends meet, uh, do this in order to have something for their children to open on, Crips, on Christmas. Uh, well, there's this particular year, uh, is nearly 10 years ago if my memory uh, serves me, uh, but this very wealthy man anonymously uh, went to this department store where all these gifts were still on layaway, and without anybody knowing, he paid for hundreds of thousands of dollars for gifts for all these children, just out of the kindness of his heart, right? He showed compassion for these people who had nothing. Hundreds of kids were going to have a great Christmas, right? Their parents weren't going to have to work as hard. They could actually spend time with their children. And so all over the news and all over social media, uh, people were praising this man, saying this, this guy did such a wonderful thing by, by paying for these gifts for these children. He didn't have to. He wasn't obligated to do this. He did it because he wanted to. He did it out of his own love. On the contrary, nobody was writing in the Facebook comments or calling the news station saying, how dare this man execute mercy and compassion and not give compassion to uh, two states away or to where I live or to the entire United States? That's not fair. No, everyone was glad that this man demonstrated genuine compassion. They weren't saying, oh, it's not fair. I, I, didn't, get, I didn't get my presence paid for. No, it was a great thing that he did. Now, so is it not also with God? None of us deserve such a gift of salvation. None of us deserve one second of it. We don't deserve eternal life in Christ Jesus. Are you kidding me? We bring nothing but the sin that made it necessary for Christ to die on our behalf. So why would we, as sinful creatures, raise up an objection against God, thinking for one second that he is not being merciful and just. We're not owed anything. And as we'll see next week, Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will not the molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter have the right over the clay to make uh, one lump, a useful lump, and one lump devoted to destruction? course god has the right and the privilege to do all of the above and so brothers and sisters again here's the thing none of us deserve god's mercy if you have still missed this truth that man has nothing to do with his own salvation you have missed the first nine chapters of romans and i would encourage you to go back through and read diligently to pray that the Spirit would enliven your heart to see the truth. If your work had any part in salvation, 
then none of us would be saved. You cannot earn God's mercy because you have nothing to bring to God. Is this not really good news to us? That we don't have to do anything to earn God's favor? That Christ Jesus himself took it upon himself to make people his own treasure, his own possession? That he would call a sheep, a flock, unto himself? That he would lay his life down for the sheep on their behalf? That though God's justice and wrath is rightly should have been crushing us, Jesus himself crushed himself on the cross on our behalf. Jesus bore it. The death penalty, the wages that we deserve, Jesus Christ bore it. The death that we deserve, Jesus Christ bore it. <clears throat> Undeserved mercy, salvation, all the gifts that we are given in Christ, none of it we earned. Turn to Christ. If you're not in Christ, turn from your sins. Don't let the opportunity escape you. Don't walk out this door without knowing Christ. His word is true. This Christ, if you are in him, has died for you. He has taken you from a child of wrath and will make you into a child of God's covenant, of God's people. You will be adopted. You will be granted the privileges that are found in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the bread of heaven. He is the vine. We are the branches. He is the light of the world. He is our God. I'm going to leave you with two hymns that just crushed me this morning in thinking about what Christ did. Were you to count my sinful ways, how could I come before your throne? Yet full forgiveness meets my gaze. I stand redeemed by grace alone, and one many of you are familiar with. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let us pray. What a gift, O Lord. What a treasure it is to know you. Nothing we have done or earned to know you deeply and sincerely. But Lord, you have saw it fit before the foundations of the world to call a people unto yourself. And how kind and gracious, O oh you, O oh Lord of mercies. How deep your love, who would make a wretch his treasure. Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus. We thank you for the truths of Scripture, that none of this would be possible save for him. It's to him all glory, honor, dominion, and privilege, whom we exalt, in whose name we pray. Amen.